0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers sitting around drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Chaz Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 123, Interview with Catherine Lundoff. Welcome, Catherine. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me on. Catherine Lundoff is a writer, an editor, a publisher, a game writer. Wow, she does so much stuff. How do you ever manage to have a day job with all of this?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, it isn't easy. (laughs) I try not to do all of it at the same time, but it doesn't always work out that way.
0: (laughs) Well, you're living proof for me that when they say if you want something done, give it to a busy person. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with the publisher because Queen of Swords Press is pretty cool. And I believe you have a birthday of that coming up, right?
1: We do. We turn five in January, which is very exciting.
2: Ooh. What are you doing to celebrate?
1: That's a really good question and something that I need to think more about. Um, <laughs> but doing this on the fly and making it up as I go, which is a frequent factor to how things happen around here, uh, we're getting our own tea blend. And we should be getting that next month. Um, there's a local company called Bingley's Tea, which is run by my friend Julia, who I used to be in the Jane Austen Society with back when I had free time. And Julia makes fabulous teas, and she's making up a chai blend for us, which we will be marketing with books and mugs and so forth. So we'll have the tea, and we'll probably do an event either locally from Dreamhaven Books or possibly from remotely from our attic office. I mean you're a mere mile away from Dreamhaven books.
2: You you don't have a special edition of something planned for, for January. You
1: no, know, there was no way to get the timing mm. to work out for that. Yeah. We do a lot of our releases in time for either the holidays or specific promotional
0: opportunities. How did it happen? For those people that are thinking, well, my career as a writer isn't like blowing off into the stratosphere. Maybe I could be a publisher how do you start such a thing?
1: Well, I started as a writer. So I was just a writer for a number of years. Then I edited or co-edited a couple of anthologies. And then let's just say some wacky hijinks ensued. And after a lawyer talked me out of signing a three book deal with one of the then more heavy hitting romance publishers, um, which subsequently blew up in really fantastical ways. I, I woke up one day and I said, Self, you cannot possibly be more dysfunctional than some of the people you've been dealing with. (laughs) So, why don't you try this? (laughs) So, did I did do a lot of planning? I took classes with the Small Business Administration. I, you know. Took a, a bunch of you know publishing related classes, and I'd been getting published for you know a decade and change before that, so it wasn't like completely new territory, but there was definitely a learning curve and things I had to figure out. So like the whole first year, I just published my backlist because I didn't want to practice on anyone else.
2: <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. It's deeply fair. How um how how many books a year do you reckon to put out now?
1: Um well. I'm trying to get back into the three books a year. So we're releasing our third title uh, at the beginning of November. And what I've found is that if I do four books in a year while working a a day job, I tend to have a lot of accidents and get sick very often. So I'd rather not do
0: that. (laughs) Well, if you say three books a year and you've been open for five years, so is your 15th title coming up?
1: 13th. Last, last year was, was 2020 with all that went with that. And so we only got put out one book because I didn't get the, the second one was one of my novels and I just didn't get it done in time. So
0: what, what were the challenges specific to COVID? I mean, besides a general sense of hanging doom and ennui combined, what are the challenges that publishers had during COVID?
1: Well, the economy tanked, which was one significant issue, we lost all of our in-person events. So for an example, I was the book I, I did manage to publish last year was A.J. Fitzwater's The Voyages of Sinrak the Dapper, which is a marvelous collection of linked stories about a dapper lesbian capybara pirate. Ooh, and it is I need awesome. This. I need
0: this. This a lesbian awesome. capybara pirate. I, I just, yes, we all need this right now. <laughs>
1: It, it it's it's like a fictional hug. I mean, it's just this just bundle of queer joy of a book. So it really needed to be out in the world. However, yes. AJ lives in New Zealand. So we had planned for AJ to do a brief tour of the US and we were going to do a release party and AJ was going to do readings on both coasts. And we had all this stuff in the works lined up, confirmed, just about ready to go. And then lockdown happened. So massive scramble to get everything online. And amongst the things that we saw a lot of last year um, were that if events were very, very established as in-person events, you know, people were going because they expected to be doing a certain level of networking and expected to see their friends and so forth. They really tanked when they went online. Right. The things that were less heavily attached to the in-person perspective, or were built, like Flights of Foundry is one example of a conference that was built to be online. Those were great. Those were fine. They went great. But anything that was like, for example, here in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, and bear in mind that we're also, I was also in Minneapolis. So there are a bunch of like, other things not directly related to the press that also impacted the press. Um, we were on fire a lot last year. Um, yes,
0: And there was the year before that you had a lot of riots and police behaving badly.
1: That was last year. We are four blocks from George George Floyd Square. That's where our office is. Oh dear. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was it was uh, In a interesting on many many levels.
0: And Minneapolis has <laughs> such a reputation of being a very creative town. I mean, Charles Delint did a lot for it. Prince did a lot for it. You know, the um, art scene alone must be amazing. Or we, you know, we it, it is. generally is.
1: That is true. I mean, we've got, you know, Pamela Dean and Carolyn Stevermer and Emma Bull and all kinds of amazing local writers doing terrific things. Um, Naomi Kritzer, um, you know, so there's all there's a tremendous theater scene. There's a tremendous art scene. But when everything shuts down, there's no money and things are on fire. It's kind of hard to keep those things going, <laughs> Um, so we're, we're coming back. We're coming back. Um, okay. I just went to a performance by a Native American theater about, it was a post-apocalyptic play about two middle-aged Native women who'd been exiled from their tribe. And it was staged out of doors in one of the areas of Lake Street that had been, you know, pretty heavily hit by the fires. And it was perfect. So there we are, surrounded by ruins in this field. <laughs> it's, oh.
0: It was a great play. They did a terrific job with it. I'd never thought of that yeah. as an opportunity, but my mm-hmm. goodness, it sure, you know. Yep. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, so, so, I mean, seriously, how much of an impact on, on the numbers, on book sales, has, has lockdown been?
1: Well, we're coming back up now. So we're actually close to where we should have been. After 2019, 2019 was our best year for sales. Um, That was the year where we got more visible. We had more books out, a couple of books finaled for awards, got some buzz in Publishers Weekly, all of that kind of good stuff. You know, 2020, you know, between having one book out and the economy tanking and everything Mm. else, it wasn't our worst year, but it was far from our best one either. And then coming into this year, it meant that sales were really slow to take off. So, I put out a novel in March. It was a sequel to um, my previous novel about the menopausal werewolf, Silver Moon. And that's our bestseller. And so, people have been waiting for the sequel for a while. So, I put that out in March. And for like the first couple of months, it was pretty much the only thing that sold. And then, you know, things started to pick back up. Synrac got on the Locus Recommended list, you know, that kind of stuff started to come together. Um, put out another book by a different author from New Zealand, Ram Wigmore, in August. And so things have definitely been going up ever since then. Plus, we now have more in-person events, and people are more accustomed to online events. Because I think part of the problem was that they just didn't go and shop while they were there, either because they le- legitimately couldn't because there wasn't money, or because they weren't used to it, or you know it just wasn't the same kind of thing that you get tabling at a world con or tabling at a bigger convention
0: there's something that makes me ponder my own emotional reaction to a lot of what happened was i was not able to watch tv i don't think i watched more than three episodes of something in all of 2020. i just couldn't if it wasn't hockey which was hockey was impersonal and no emotions and i could not <laughs> you know everything else but i read i did nothing but bury myself in books but I heard a lot of people that had, because of their own emotional reactions to what was going on, they're like, I can't concentrate. I can't finish a book. Mm-hmm. I just put them aside. And I wonder if it's just that people couldn't when in 2020 in particular, and maybe even the first few months of 2021 until, let's say after January passed, at least in America, it yes. was a certain lightness and a certain sense of hope allowed me to and engage in allowed me to re engage with TV, but other people who are the opposite to be re engaged in literature again.
1: I think there's definitely something to that. I mean, I, I spent most of the summer either, you know, trying to help people out or watching for fires or explosions or whatever was going to happen next. And it was mm-hmm. very, very, very intense here. Um, I was still reading because that's my traditional form of escape, right. but I wasn't spending a lot of time shopping or adding things to the household. <laughs> um, you know, I think I think all of that together, you know, it's, it's not surprising that it wasn't a great year. And I know a lot of other small presses and indie bookstores and so forth also had a bad year. So I think it was, you know, it was a perfectly fine year if you were a random penguin, but not so f- fine if you were anybody else.
0: <laughs> that makes sense. And I usually try to read some, I, anything, anybody we interview, I try to read something they've written so that I know. But as it turns out, I didn't have to go out and read anything new for you because you have written Sherlock Holmes stories. <laughs> I
1: have. I have. <laughs> I have like, a sideline
0: in Sherlockiana. <laughs> gosh, her name sounds so familiar. And so I was gleaming with you. I'm like, I own that anthology and I own that anthology. <laughs> I love Sherlock Holmes anthologies. And Excellent. I've always wanted to write one, but I've, I, I've shied away and say, I don't know if I'm good enough or brave enough yet, so you are good and brave enough, and I just, my hat is off, so
1: great. Those are kind of an interesting saga unto themselves, because at this point, I've, I've written for anthologies edited by Maxim Jakubowski, who's kind of a, a god of British crime fiction, I love um, and John Linwood Grant. I'm sorry, what?
2: I love Maxim. I've known I mean, I've known Maxim for yes. 30 years and he's yeah he's just so embedded in the British crime scene it's fabulous. Yes.
1: Um, and the, the other the other editor who I've written Sherlock's uh, home stories for is John Ludwin Grant. And both of them like canon a lot. <laughs> so to write for either of them as an American author is a really interesting experience. And I had to do like a lot more prep work than I would have under other other circumstances for I think, probably an American editor doing something similar. Um, So amongst other things, I actually reread the entire canon. And
0: I'm sorry, he had a lot of extra words in there from his uh, newspaper. I'm just thinking, (laughs) study of Scarlet, everybody knows. And you lose homes very quickly and you go off to America and talk about Mormons. So
1: just saying. <laughs> and, and, and and yet I've read them all multiple times. now. <laughs> oh, you. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that, that was actually part of my prep to get ready for that because, you know, I, I wanted the tone right and I wanted to, you know, not sound like an American writing a strange stereotype of, you know, Victorian
0: detective. (laughs) That brings up an interesting question, though. And I don't know that, I mean, has anybody said anything like this? So, you kind of went and researched a little bit of the editors and the people running it. If I wanted to, I mean, would that be good advice if, like, I wanted to submit to an anthology? I should go look up what else they publish and what it sounds like. And do they have a tone and that sort of thing? If you want to increase your percentage of acceptance, it's an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah, It it can make a big difference.
2: Yeah. They always say, um, if you want to publish in a particular magazine, read a few issues of that magazine first. And yeah, chasing editors is exactly the same thing. Look at, look, you know, you, you look at what the kind of things they publish, the kind of things they like. Right. And, and shoot in that general direction.
0: Well, I, I dared to write something, I'm still working on it, in 1901, London starts in London, so the first person I went to is, hey, Chaz, <laughs> <laughs> you may not know this, but you're British. And
2: <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot of my time this year particularly Britishifying a series of American novels, well, no, a series of novels written by an American, Brenda Clough, um, but set in the u k and again i mean victorian times um so there's a lot of sort of history and twiddling um that i'm I'm applying to manuscripts I, I we call it chasifying um and, and there's been i mean there's been so much back and forth about this we think we have a a slim volume, something more than a pamphlet um because a lot of American writers set stories in the UK, particularly historically. Likewise, the other way around, a lot of British writers like to set stories in the US. Um, And yeah, we can share all this knowledge that we have gleaned through 11 manuscripts Um, and and hopefully be helpful.
0: I think it is. I mean, I I wish sometimes people would come out and say, all right, I have a especially Hollywood this is this is for all you hollywood writers out there and screenwriters ask somebody in it security <laughs> if your script makes sense because for all of us who ever watched <laughs> ncis and had them two people scooching together and both of them typing on the,
2: on same, the same keyboard. same keyboard at the same I, time. I loved that.
0: Oh, I, I mean, like I threw mean, something <laughs> at the television. I'm like, no, what the fuck? Oh, <laughs> Yeah. And cryptography. No, it doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't work <laughs> like that either. You you really want to hack Megacorp and cyberpunk. You know what you should really do is take a sales guy out drinking. That, I mean... <laughs> I just feel like we haven't talked about – people don't talk about that they think, oh, it's so techie and I'm going to be so techie and cool and use words that nobody understands. Well, there's a lot of us that understand those words, and it pisses us off if you use them wrong. So I'm just saying – Totally
1: understandable.
0: Befriend your local geek.
1: (laughs) I I did once read a a Sherlock Holmes story, a a pastiche of where the author had Sherlock Holmes patting a Victorian street urchin on the head – and
0: why would you do that? Why would you touch it? They could have well, lice. Okay.
1: First of all, you've got the hygiene element. Second of all, I'm pretty sure that a Victorian agent street urchin could take your fingers off with their teeth or what remained of them. And third,
0: Sherlock Holmes? Yeah. No. Yeah. I hear you, but I feel like you have a lot to offer and you you do mentor young writers, right? If they have or they, if they had a problem with this, so they wanted to understand maybe some research on the area, or maybe want to learn how to write more accurately in their genre, or how to really fit in, or what other kinds of teaching do you do for people?
1: Um Well, I teach for Kat Rambo, who has an online writing academy. So I have a cycle of, I think we're up to five classes now that I teach for her. Um, I teach for a local arts organization called Springboard for the Arts. And for that one, it's just like a general introduction to genre fiction publishing. Um, this marks our first year where Queen of Swords Press has interns from the University of Minnesota. Well, Ooh. we have an intern. Um, so our first ever intern. So um, I have... I have an assistant who's part-time and she comes from a a literary fiction lit magazine background. Um, But our intern at the moment is actually getting trained on some aspects of editing and book selection and that kind of stuff so that she can go on to a glorious career in publishing uh, when she graduates, hopefully.
2: That's lovely.
1: I mean, she Um, will graduate, but hoping she's going on to a glorious career.
2: Yeah. Um Yeah. Can can I I cycle back for a bit? Tell us more about your menopausal werewolves.
0: (laughs) I I understand. It really goes beautifully together because when you think about it, if those are the moon days that they used to say in different cultures, um, it does lend itself to werewolvy.
1: Okay, so it all started a while back, as in a number of years ago, before I started the press, before I considered starting the press, um, I got invited to write for an anthology of female werewolf stories. Um, They might have been lesbian werewolf stories, I don't remember exactly anymore. Um, and so I was sort of delving into it. And what I ran across was that there were a couple of different tropes at the time that were very popular. And one was a female werewolf becoming a werewolf at the onset of first menses. So mm-hmm. you've got that in Ginger Snaps the mm-hmm. movies, uh, Susie McKeach harnesses boobs. A short story, not literally Suzuki. A couple of other things. Um, So it it was pretty frequent for a time at the time. So I was looking at it, going, "Hmm, you know, if at one point in life, why not another?" And there was less representation of middle-aged and older women in science fiction and fantasy than you see now. And it's not spectacular now, but it's better than it was. Um, and so I was poking around in the wilds of online diagnose yourself um, websites, and I ran across, I don't know, I forget which one it was, but it had a thing about the quote unquote symptoms of menopause, which included mood swings, unexpected hair growth, <laughs> longer Jeez, because your gums (laughs) recede Uh, i'm like hmm so that's the idea for menopausal werewolves was born um so i wrote the first book got published by my previous publisher you know a few years later we came to the parting of the ways i did a new version new updated version for queen of swords different cover it's longer i changed some things um and it turned out to be kind of a cult classic. Hmm. So people will actually come up with to me at events uh, on a fairly regular basis and tell me that this was their coming out novel. Um, <laughs> it's about a woman named Becca. And Becca, is, you know, 50, she's just entering menopause. And she's, you know, as far as she knows, she's straight. And she ends up falling for her neighbor, who's a werewolf, and joining the local middle-aged werewolf pack And so I, you know, I set them up as protectors because they're, you know, women past childbearing age who've, you know, you traditionally fill other roles in most societies. And, you know, so I started playing with the concept and people really liked it. So I, I still get notes occasionally where people ask if they can move to Wolf's Point, which is the, the town that I created for them. And so people had been asking for a sequel for this for a while. And I'd started one and stuff happened and then more stuff happened. And then it was like I said, it was supposed to come out last year, but last year was what it was. And so, um, yeah, so the sequel came out this year and the sequel was barely out on the selling platforms, when I got my first note saying, So, is there a book three yet?
2: So, are you writing book three?
1: I'm going to be writing book three. It hasn't quite gelled in my brain yet, but it's starting to. So, uh, yes.
0: Can I so, throw something out that literally I thought of while you were describing the idea of the menopausal werewolf? Mm hmm. So I was just thinking, okay, so yeah, because I recently also had the doctor say, welcome to the next 10 to 13 years of your life being perimenopausal. (laughs) Like, what do you mean 10 to 13 years? You bastards. But because for those that are not aware, we go through menopause because girls' bodies produce less of the uh, progesterone and estrogen, which suddenly we are then unbalanced with extra testosterone. So I went and looked at the other, and if the testosterone is is anything tied to the lycanthropy, what would you have if you had a boy who was going to go through lycanthropy? Only he wasn't really a boy. It turns out she's a girl the whole time, and so when she has the takes the drugs to you know avoid going through the male adolescence she doesn't actually turn into a werewolf.
1: I had a lot of conversations with trans folks of various identities after Silver Moon came out. And so there is a trans woman werewolf in book two in Blood Moon. Awesome. Um, Because, you know, we had a lot of conversations about biological essentialism, very nice conversations, very polite conversations. (laughs) And I'm like, you're trying to tell me something, aren't you? Oh, wait. (laughs) So, so, I, so I did a bit of research and talked to some more folks. And the result is that there, there, there is a, a werewolf who is a trans woman in the second book. So.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I can see that entirely. Now, you've also written a little bit for, and I played a lot of it, World of Darkness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so did you write, what are the, I mean, I have played everything from changeling to mage to vampire. What have you written for?
1: Um, I have a story in a tie-in anthology for um, the Vampire of the Masquerade 20th anniversary, uh, which came out a few years ago. Um, And I've got a story in – I'd have to look up the title of the anthology. Um, But if you you look out on Onyx Path's website, they're all there, um, Onyx Path Publishing. And then I wrote a story for the Wraith 20th anniversary tie-in anthology. And, um, as I was, you know, mentioning earlier, I just found out because I just got the ghost hunter's rule book. And I was assuming that for Ghost Hunters, which is also part of World of Darkness and is also about to release its 20th anniversary, you know, version and collection and so forth. I thought the story was going to appear in another tie-in anthology and discovered when I opened up the, you know, this is the game document that my story is now like the scenario that you can use as a jumping off point. So I'm very excited about that. <laughs> I'm like, wow! And I'm sure there's a term for it, but I don't know exactly what the term is. So, you know, it's it, it it's really, right up there at the beginning, and it's a thing you can read to kind of set the mood, basically. So
0: It really makes you think. I mean, how many stories have somebody said, all right, I really love this story from this book. I could do a whole game campaign on it. That would be kind of cool, wouldn't it?
1: It would. It would. All right. And I, it, it had never occurred to me before. I'll tell you.
0: <laughs> I was like wow, this I, is I, so great. Literally, just thinking about it right now is like I think it, Kate Elliott had a series, and I remember there was one book that I thought, "It's like this is a this is a very long chase scene," and I finally realized it's like this could translate brilliantly into a gaming system. Her, her cold magic. That. Why is there not a a whole game system based on Kate's cold magic? <laughs>
1: Kate should get more, more buzz. She I should. think I think for for all of her work. I, I think a lot of it would translate well to other different kinds of media. So if Netflix is listening, just saying,
0: you're <laughs> Netflix. I have a list. Um, contact me. <laughs> <That's true. laughs>
2: yeah, we talked. We talked to Kate um, a while back, didn't we, Jeannie? Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. We can put a link to that too.
0: I was going to say, I apparently knew the, uh, well, in a very strange way, I was recommending how a friend of mine had had her daughter got caught having sex in the boys' restroom at the high school. And so she was called over. And so I made her watch Sex Education, the first episode, because it, it seemed oddly appropriate. And then I was telling somebody about it a couple of days later. And the fellow looked at me, and cocked his head and says, you know, my, my husband used to be a, a producer on that show. I did not know that. That's fantastic. So it's a tiny little world out there. Say your desires out loud, and maybe somebody will be listening and be able to hear it. Cannot hurt. Cannot hurt. So what are you doing next? What's your cunning plans?
1: Uh, Right now, I am working on getting um, Jenny new um, humorous science fiction novel, Obviously Aliens, ready for November. I
0: love the title. And
1: it's, it's a lot of fun. There's, you know, there's a body switch and there's talking corgis and there's evil plumbing executives. And
0: it's oh just plain fun.
2: You <laughs> had <what you> me <laughs> corgis, I'm just saying.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you had us at corgis. <laughs> the
1: corgis are really adorable.
0: <laughs> is, it, is it wrong that I looked and said, oh, they have all the pictures up for the new cast coming in of um, Cowboy Bebop. I'm like, but, but where's Ein, you know? Oh, thank goodness he's there! I don't know if, if that was entirely germane to bringing back corgis as being a a popular breed, but between the Queen and Cowboy Bebop, I'm just saying corgis
2: are so cute. <laughs> Did you know corgis I'll have to ask float? the
0: author? <laughs> Sorry, say it again,
2: Corgi butts float. If you if you immerse a corgi in a bath of water, their butts. Bob to the surface. It's peculiar.
0: Well, my butt bobs to the surface, so I can, <laughs> <you know. laughs> All right. in terms of what would you give if if somebody out there was listening or wanting to attend one of your classes, etc., what is some basic advice if somebody is like, I don't know if I can write or not, but I want to become a writer. What would you tell them?
1: I think I would ask how they feel about writing when they try to do it. I think that You know, writing, you know, writing for yourself is one thing and that's, that's perfectly valid and a really cool thing. Writing for publication is its own set of challenges. And I think that it's something you have to watch pretty badly to make work for you. And sometimes you can want it pretty badly and it doesn't work for you. <laughs> and you have to be prepared to accept that too. You know, so I, I would think, you know, I would ask who they perceive their, their, the audience for their writing to be, how they feel about their writing, who, they w- who their ideal reader is, you know, what would they want people to, to take away from their writing? And, you know, if it's mostly I want to do my own thing and write about my favorite characters from Cowboy Bebop, including the Corgi, then awesome. <laughs> you know, that's cool too. And there has to be placed place for that.
0: And that's fair because they there is a difference. And I I love that you pointed out, is it writing for you or is it writing for somebody else? And to keep your audience in mind, well, we have that for technical writing. We have that for marketing, for any kind of writing copy. The first question you have is, who is my audience? And that's beautiful Mm -hmm. that you say it so clearly. Because it also, every once in a while, I see people argue about, well, My artistic integrity says it has to be all the way that I originally imagined it. Like, (laughs) there's somewhere the path is in between of of artistic integrity and look what is your target audience looking for? Yeah, you're
1: you're you're doing a really interesting thing with this story. However, here is the giant plot hole that once I have driven the Mack truck through it, nothing else holds together. So, what do you want to do with that?
0: (laughs) It's a beautiful. Point How about for your personal writing. Do you have anything that you are uh, going to publish anytime soon?
1: Um, I've got an article running in Dream Foundry tomorrow. Um, I'm actually writing a new novel on my Patreon, um, which is the Queen of Swords Patreon. It's go it, it goes to sustain the press during periods of of slow sales. But I got the idea, you know, about a year and a half ago to take one of my old unfinished novels and just put it out there and crank out a chapter a month, roughly. Sometimes it's a chapter every two or three months. um, And I'm a complete pantser. So there's a guide to everything, including the notes, where I know that I have already messed something up and have to go back and fix it on the next draft.
0: I think this can be neat for listeners and and readers, too, to say, wow, how did I get, you know, if you're putting your raw stuff out on Patreon versus here's the polished novel – to actually see the process. You can do that with Patreon. Mm -hmm. You
1: can, you can. And I've had some good feedback about that. Um, I didn't actually start writing fiction at all until I was in my early thirties. So there's no trunk novels. There's no like unpublished backlist. There's no, you know, deeply fraught, tear-stained diary entries. That stuff just doesn't exist. So everything is created as I create
0: it. (laughs) I feel called out. Well, we, will put, um, we will put links to all of Catherine's stuff that we've mentioned on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcompie. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. Catherine, if somebody wants to send you something or, or ask you a question, should they do that via your website or via your Patreon, or how should they approach you?
1: Um, the, the contact form on my website, is is usually the best way to get a hold of me. Um, A lot of people talk to me on Twitter and so forth, and that's fine, too.
0: Oh, do you accept DMs, then?
1: Um, I do if I'm following back. So sometimes it is best to tell me that you wish to send me a DM, and then I'll (laughs) connect with you at that point.
0: That is fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schwein, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both performed by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. And hey, thanks so much for listening.